we've been walking through a sermon series on the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy, Titus, and this morning we're actually wrapping up the first pastoral epistle, First um, Timothy. So if you brought a Bible, let's turn to First Timothy chapter six this morning. Prior to the 13th century, the Bible did not have chapters and verses. Uh, it, it was just straight text, which I can find very helpful. Sometimes the chapters and verses, I, I think they're actually really helpful. But sometimes just having text, I think, is even more helpful. And so somewhere in between the 13th century up until about the 16th century, the Bible began to divide sections in the chapters, verses, pretty much what you have in front of you today. Even more recently, translations have begun to put in headings. So you'll kind of see that. And that's where we are today in chapter 6. You'll see a heading there. Um, And this is whoever placed this heading in chapter 6 is someone who I'm certain does not struggle with OCD like myself. If you notice, you probably have some type of heading right before verse 3. The ESV says false teachers and true contentment. It's kind of a little heading there. But notice how after the heading, the passage doesn't start with verse 3. Someone had the audacity to start a heading in the middle of a verse. I mean, who would do such a thing? So technically, we are starting in chapter 6, verse 2b, okay? So the Word of God says this. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved away from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, may you make it completely clear to us today that when we have you, we are rich, that we have everything that we could possibly ever need. May we be content and satisfied in you. So, Lord, show us our hearts this morning. Show us areas where we, maybe we are not satisfied. We are still longing for other things. And, Lord, show us why we can just be satisfied in you, that you are enough. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've reminded us several weeks as we're going through 1 Timothy that that all of what is being written here is kind of under the umbrella of chapter 3 when Paul makes his purpose statement where he says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul is showing us, he's telling Timothy how to behave in the household of God as he wraps up this letter. And his closing remarks to this young pastor it was to fight. You see that throughout this passage. Now, the fight that Paul is instructing Timothy to engage in is not the type of fight that many people think about when they think of church fights, okay? This is not, this is not about music or carpet colors or whatever. This is, this is about fighting the good fight. This is a specific fight here. And so it's interesting, though, how he tells um, Timothy to fight. So as we walk through this passage, this is, um, this is a good fight. And, and the very first charge that he gave to Timothy was to fight against these false teachers. And so he's writing again. And so Paul knows that, Timothy, like, I know you're younger than a lot of these teachers, but you're going to have to be bold. You're going to have to stand up against some of these false teachers in the church and stand up for what's right, for, these, for, for correct teaching and doctrine. And so he transitions here in 2B um, to teach and urge these things. So one of the qualifications that we saw back in chapter 3 for an elder was he had to be able to teach. And so Paul instructs Timothy to teach and urge these things. These, 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 these things, probably referring to everything in this letter. He's wrapping up. He's, he's um, finalizing his thoughts. And he's saying... Teach these things. These things I'm teaching to you, teach to others. Paul then tells Timothy why some teachers teach a different doctrine. This is quite interesting. Why do people teach different doctrine? He writes in verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, so here comes Paul's reasoning here in verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy 
and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gains. We read that the different doctrine that Paul mentions does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is probably a reference to the sound or healthy words of Jesus himself. Sometimes you'll hear people put the words of Jesus up against the words of Paul. These are called red-letter Christians. Maybe you know some of these people. Maybe you've heard of them. This is, this is not a good way to read the Bible. What, what they do is they essentially they look at the red letters that Jesus says, and they, those, those carry more weight than the words that Paul would write. But as we'll see in 2 Timothy, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. So the black words that you see in front of you today carry just as much weight as the red words uh, because we believe that, really, if all the words of God are inspired, God's words, they're all red, right? God has spoken every single word, so they're all red letters. So Paul was not up against Jesus. Jesus is not up against Paul. These the, the Bible is not a book compiled from different um, competing authors. These are different authors all telling one unified story. Paul also says that these teachers do not agree with the teaching that accords with godliness. Paul says that such a teaching is puffed up with conceit. Godliness is all about what God has done for us in Christ. But these false teachers are all about what we have done to be found acceptable to God. They think that godliness is a means on what you work harder for. For someone to look at God's word and see what it says, but then to go rogue and teach something um, contrary from what the Bible teaches, Paul says the only explanation is that person must be puffed up with conceit. Paul tells us that the false teachers are driven by their ignorance and arrogance. Verse 4 says that they are conceited, understanding nothing. Being ignorant and arrogant is a dangerous combination, isn't it? In contrast, we see a better combination in verse 6. Verse 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world... And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. You know, there's a saying that's, that goes, uh, there, there's no U-Haul attached to the back of a hearse. You know, you, you're not taking anything with you. This morning I was walking over here to church, and I saw Eric and Claire. They have their U-Haul packed up behind their car. Such a sad day. I'm excited for you guys. I'm not sure where, they, where, where are you guys this morning, right in front of me. Um, sad to see you guys take off to Louisville, but um, excited for what God's going to do um, while you're at seminary, and just um, excited for you guys as a family. Um, but I, you know, I saw the U-Haul, and I thought, it's interesting. You, you, know, you can take that stuff now, right, from Huntington to Louisville. We'll make that trip. But once we take our final breath, there's no U-Haul on the back end of the hearse. You can't take anything with you. This is it. And Paul is... He says here, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, Paul's not saying that owning more than that is wrong, obviously. But he's saying that the possessions of this world are only for this world. You can't take them with you. 
And when you think about Jesus' life for a moment, just think about his life as you think about the Gospels. His life, like to our knowledge, he never owned a home. You know, some of you, maybe you're early 20s, maybe you're in your 30s or 40s, maybe even older than that, and thinking, I, I, don't, I don't have a house. What am I going to do? I need to get ready. Some of you, maybe you're paying rent. Oh, I'm just throwing money away. In some sense, we're all throwing money away. Right? It's not our house. You know, I'm paying for our house, and it's not mine. There's going to be one day when I move out, somebody else is going to move in. It's not mine. They're going to think, why do you wire it this way? Why do you, why do you, you know, install this this way? It's, it's like none of it's ours. We can't take anything with us. So Jesus never owned a home to our knowledge. He didn't have any livestock. No walk-in closet for all of his clothes. He lived a simple life. Contentment is about trust. Contentment shows that you are trusting God to be provider. Oftentimes when you are anxious about finances or not satisfied with the material things that you already have, this can be a sign that you've forgotten or ignored that God is the provider, that you think you've got to work harder and you've got to provide for your family. I tell my wife, you know, so we have seven kids, my wife and I, and my wife's like, you know, can, you know, please nothing happen to you. I don't know what we would do. And I'm like, I, I am not your provider. I am the means of provision for you right now. I'm not the provider. God is the provider for my family. If something would happen to me, it wouldn't shock God. He already knows. And there would be means that he would provide for my family, just as he always has and he always will. Contentment is an issue of trust. And Paul addresses the topic of contentment in many letters. I love how he does it to the Philippian church. In Philippians, he writes this. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Doesn't that verse fit much better there in the context? Makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? It's probably not meant for your athletic team. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can beat that undefeated team today. No, probably not. You're not that good. But, but you can have contentment in that loss, because you know that whatever you face in life, abundance or, you know, uh, in, in plenty of hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And notice how Paul says he had to learn these things. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Paul had to learn. Your natural self will not desire contentment. Your flesh will only want more and more and more and more. Your flesh will never be satisfied. So Paul had to learn. He had to grow in the discipline of being content. Contentment is when the Christian says, you, O Lord, you're enough. I'm satisfied in you alone. Rip everything away from me. It's kind of where he brought Job. At the end of Job, Job finally got to the place of contentment. You, Lord, are all that I need. 
However, we see in verse 9 that the alternative to contentment leads to disaster. Let's keep reading. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In verses 9 and 10, Paul begins to move to the heart. He says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Having wealth is not the problem. It's not. There are some people who handle their wealth really well. So the problem isn't with how much money you have. The problem rests within the heart and whether you are content with what has been given to you. Paul is essentially saying that your desire for wealth, it's deceiving you. That's what it means when he says that those who desire to be rich fall into this temptation, into a snare. A snare is a trap. Desiring wealth is a trap where you think something great is going to happen to you. Things like happiness, things like peace. If I just had more money, I would have contentment. If I had more money, then I would, be, I would, be, I'd feel secure and safe. But Paul says the opposite is what you often find. He says you find when you desire wealth, when you desire to be rich, what do you, what do you um, find at the end of that road? He says ruin and destruction. That's strong language. You know, I've never met anyone that says, I just want to make a lot of money so I can have ruin and destruction in my life. But this is exactly what Paul says will happen to those who desire to be rich. This is why the book of James strongly opposes the traps of wealth. James says it this way in James 5. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Strong language. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is a life of ruin and destruction. Greed, shameless gain, focusing on the here and now, not thinking about the afterlife. What can I get? More, 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 more. Instead of thinking, what can I give? But now watch how James says that you are to combat this type of heart issue in verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I think James's reasoning and Paul's warnings, I think they're tied together. Paul says, you didn't bring anything into this world, nor can you take anything out of this world, that you have food and clothing. With these things, we should be content. Understanding that our lives, James says, is just a mist. 
We're here for a moment and then we're gone. We vanish. That we're all just passing through. Those things should help us to be content. It's like when you're going on a short, maybe a weekend trip. You know you don't need to take a bunch of things with you. It's just a short trip. James is saying that this life is like a short weekend trip. For what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanish. We're gone. So why are we hoarding everything? We're not sticking around. So we're not sticking around. Why don't we give? Paul says that it is through this craving that some have even wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Think of all the people you've seen. Maybe they're active in church. They're very faithful. And over time, they just kind of wander away. I wonder how many of them just wandered away because they love the things of the world more than the things of God. So what are we to do? How do we battle against the dangers of wandering away from the faith? Paul answers in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul gives Timothy, this old man of God, a series of commands here. First, he is to flee these things. Run. It's interesting, though. He tells him to flee these things, but then he turns around in verse 12 and he tells him to fight. Fighting the good fight is a great reminder for us that we are in wartime. We're not in a time of peace. There's an enemy out there who hates you, wants to destroy you and your family. There's a battle waging all around us. But Paul says that sometimes the best way to fight is to flee, to run. Flee these things. This reminds me of how Joseph in the Old Testament, fought. Joseph, um, story of Joseph, he lived in Egypt. Uh, he found favor with God, and God made him overseer of everything in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife found Joseph really attractive, and she began to pursue him. Genesis says that day after day, she pursued Joseph. And Joseph kept saying, you know, how can I do this great wicked thing against um, my God, how can I sin against God? And he would not listen to her. And so you can be strong day after day. Um, he would not listen to her. But then um, a little later in that passage, it says, but one day, one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, so it's, there, it's, it's just alone, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. So what was his plan then? You know, he, he's avoided her, you know, told her, no, I can't do this. This is sinful. And so now she's got him by the garment. And how does he fight that fight? He takes off running. He flees. He, he leaves his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. See, Joseph was strong day after day. But what would have happened on that one day if he had let his guard down? Nobody's around. If he were just living for the here and now, nobody would have known. 
But Joseph had eternal mindset. He knew that God saw everything. Joseph would let his guard down. We might know Joseph in a completely different light, maybe how we know King David. But Joseph fled. He ran. And there are so many instances where the best way to fight is to flee. Just run. That sound, you know, running sounds, you know, less like fighting, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in this tactic. It's just running. So we are to flee, Paul says, but he also says to pursue. We are to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So I love this. This picture here of fleeing, pursuing. I think in Maybe Paul phrases it a different way in other, some of his other letters. Instead of saying fleeing and pursuing, I think this is this, very similar to what he's saying in Ephesians, Colossians, when he's saying put off the old self, put on the new self made after Christ. That we're supposed to leave how we used to live and pursue the things of Christ. What are you fleeing from? What do you need to put to death in your life? And then what do you need to pursue? How are you starving the flesh and feeding the spirit? How do you fight against the constant desire for more in this culture? I mean, everything is about having more. You realize that none of you should be satisfied, right? Have you ever turned on the TV? None of you should be content. Your car... Come on, get out of here. You need the newer car, and you need the electric car. And those of you who have an electric car, you probably need a different one. There's always something better, bigger, faster, stronger. It's all around us. I think the best way you fight an increasing desire for things is with an increasing delight in Christ. And Paul understood this better than anyone. Whether Paul had much or little, it didn't matter to him. He had Christ. And having Christ was literally enough. Is Christ enough for you? Or do you need Christ plus something? Christ and fill in the blank, however he's speaking to you right now. Or is he just sufficient? In verse 13, Paul gives yet another charge to Timothy. He writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I truly believe that when you realize that Jesus is gain, then you will begin to live differently from the world. When you see your neighbors and everybody buying all these things, and you just see Christ as this passage shows Christ, Christ is enough. Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 
who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. If these things are true about Jesus, then this should influence us to be content because we know that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, can provide our greatest needs. And your greatest needs, you might need to change your greatest needs to your greatest wants because there's a difference between what you want and what you actually need. Paul now returns once again to the topic of wealth. Our next verse, Paul writes in verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to, res- not to, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says here, as for the rich. So he's making a delineation in this church at Ephesus that some were rich, maybe some weren't. And so maybe now at this moment, as you hear the words, now to the rich, maybe you've mentally checked out. You may think, oh, okay, Paul's addressing the rich. So I'm just going to check my phone for a moment. Think about my day. What are we going to have to eat later? Let me know when he gets back to addressing the middle class folk. Then I'll check back in. But right now, he's, he's addressing the rich. I'm guessing even the wealthiest people in this room right now probably don't feel like they are rich or wealthy. But we in America, we are rich. If you compare our lives to the world, so if you just average income in West Virginia, let's say $30,000 a year, $30,000, you are in the 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. Isn't that crazy? $30,000 in America, we, 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 don't, we don't look at that as being wealthy. Wealth, we, we just kind of compare. Even those... You who are above, well above 30,000, you don't think you're wealthy. It's because you compare yourself to like Elon Musk, Bill Gates. Well, then, no, you're not wealthy. But compared to the world, you're loaded. If you make over 70,000, you start getting into like you're in the top one, two, three percent of the wealth of the world. Isn't that insane? So I'm looking at many people who are in the top bracket of wealth. On average, though, Christians give about 2.5% to their church. And then our churches, at least churches in America, on average, turn around and give about 2% of their budget to overseas missions. These are things that we're supposed to care a lot about. There are people who have never heard the gospel. They would die and go to hell. And yet... We live like we are more important, that having extra things are more important than those who have never heard the gospel, missions. God has truly lavished upon us his riches. But what have we done with those riches? If you're giving, on average, as statistics show, 2.5% to the church, 
then this could mean, I know you could be giving more to other things, but this could mean that you're spending almost 98% on yourself. Because Christ is Lord of Lords, he is King of Kings, we need to realize that even if you tithe, okay, let's see those of you maybe stick your chest out. I'm a tither. I've always tithed. Even if you give 90% or you give 10% to the church, the other 90% of your income still belongs to Christ. That's what it means for him to be Lord. He is Lord. It all belongs to him. Your time, your talent, your treasure is his. When Christ becomes the Lord, then you willingly surrender everything to him. And here we see Paul's final charge to Timothy. He writes, as for the rich in this present age, verse 17, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So being haughty or prideful, it can blind you to think that wealth gives you security for the future. This is why I love, I love working with college students. College students love to take risks. You're so bold. I love it. Like, you're like, yeah, like, I'm just going to go and do. But it's amazing, like, you get married, you get a job, start having kids. You don't take as many risks. So I think most of the, you know, missionaries, famous missionaries, they're all young. Most of them are young. I shouldn't say all. Most of them are young. They're bold. And there's something about money that has this deception to it that thinks, like, I'm secure. You know, money's going to provide security. Well, does anyone look at our economy and feel secure right now? My goodness. Our economy is so fragile. If you don't believe the uncertainty of riches, just ask someone who banked with Silicon Valley Bank this year or the other banks that are falling apart. Let them tell you how fast everything can change. It's like Friday, SVP was good. On Monday, it was done. It's how fast it can happen. Paul says that we are not to bank on the banks, but rather, rather we should bank on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I mean, how, what a promise is that? Do you believe the word of God is true? You believe his promises are true? This is a promise from God. But on God, who richly provides us present tense, with everything to enjoy. It's a promise to you. The warnings Paul gives about material possessions, it's similar to how Jesus spoke about possessions. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6 shows us what good investing looks like. There is uncertainty with earthly riches, but heavenly riches are secure. I remember when Olivia and I were first married, 
we didn't have a lot of stuff. We couldn't afford stuff. Um, and I remember our garage just out back, we, we didn't even lock it. It was just, you just kind of pulled it up and um, there was nothing in it. So we didn't have to lock it. I didn't have any tools at that time. Um, but I remember getting the, getting, getting the house and starting to buy some tools, put on a lawnmower in the garage. I thought, you know what, I, I need to get a lock. And it's amazing how I never worried about anybody taking anything because I didn't have anything to take. Then you start buying stuff. And I start thinking, like, somebody could take it. I got to protect it. Sometimes all the stuff we get just causes more problems. And Jesus says, live your life more, more simply. And I love in verse 21. I love verse 21 is so telling. It says, where your treasure or your money is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your money is an indicator of your heart. Your bank account shows you what you prioritize what you worship. If you look at your bank account, you will be able to see the very things that you worship. And what a lot of us will discover is that we worship ourselves. We love to make much of us, that our lives are self-centered around us. So many of us are trying to find security in our riches, but this says that we should find our security or we should set our hopes not on riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So because God richly provides us, provides for us, then we don't need to be hoarders. We don't need to be greedy, but we can be generous. We can give. Paul says in verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what of that which is truly life. This is the fleeing and pursuing or the putting off, putting on. Just like you see in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So he's no longer taking now he's making things and giving them away. You are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why? Because you don't need these things. God's going to provide for you. So let us be good about giving. I just wonder, I, I honestly don't think anybody's going to be in eternity. And, and they're going to be there and you're just reflecting if, you know, if we can even reflect on our lives here on earth. I'm not sure how that works. But I don't think there's any, if, if we can do that, I don't think there's anybody in heaven thinking, man, I wish I would have bought a bigger house. I, I wish I would have had an extra car. I wish we'd have eaten out more often. But I wonder how many regrets we'll have that we just didn't give away more things. In verse 20, Paul uses another banking term. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid social media. Hold on, wait, I lost my place. Wait. Avoid irreverent babble, excuse me, and contradictions of what is, false, or what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The you here, this is interesting. This is 1 Timothy. It's a letter written to Timothy. 
But he makes this change. I don't know why our translators don't help us out here. Most of the yous, you see the pronouns you in 1 Timothy are singular to Timothy. But this one's unique. This one's plural. This is really to the congregation. Um, Grace be with you all is what he ends here. And I think when we prize God above our possessions, we we naturally begin to give them away because we know they're just not that important. And when we do that, we're proclaiming the gospel to be good. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is incredible. The Bible describes the incarnation with language of riches and poverty. Christ became poor, taking our sin upon himself, so that we might have his righteousness. This is this great exchange. We were dead in our sins, but Christ has lavished upon us the riches of his righteousness. You go from having a debt that you could not pay, Matthew 18, to becoming filthy rich. And this wealth, I'm telling you, this wealth is secure that you have in Christ. The economy of God cannot be shaken. So then, let us put our hopes not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. May our lives be defined this week by doing good, by being rich in good works, by being generous and ready to share. And by surrendering to Christ, by trusting in his salvation, you are storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future. That's the promises that Paul leaves us with here. As the band comes back up, let's pray as we focus on these commands. Doing good, being rich in good works, being generous, ready to share Notice the ordering of this, though. This isn't do these things so that you will be in Christ. It's, it's now that you are in Christ, go do these things. Okay? Don't get the order wrong. Doing these things will not save you. Okay? There's a lot of generous people in the world who are good givers. doesn't save them. But may every Christian, those who have surrendered, may every Christian be marked by these things that we would be doers of good, that we would be rich in good works, that we would be generous, that we'd be ready to share. These things aren't ours. God has given them to us. Let's give them out to others. Let's pray. God, you're so good and faithful and kind. God, you've lavished your riches upon us. Lord, help us to be content in what you've given us. May we not be greedy, hoarders, but may we be kind and generous. May that be how we live because we know that we're not living for this world. That's easy to give because we are living for the next. But there's an eternity waiting for us. So Lord, help us not to put everything here in this earth. We can't take anything with us. Help us to be content in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.